Coming up on Art Palace. Actually, the entire complex is 38 square miles. Yowza. That's half the size of the city of Cincinnati. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Helen Rensberg, one of our docents, who will be taking me on a tour of the exhibition Terracotta Army, Legacy of the First Emperor of China. So we're looking at a map here in... uh, Now, this will be a good test. Mm-hmm. Does Russell know the name of the exhibition that we are standing in? <laughs> I know it is Terracotta Army, Legacy of the First Emperor of China. Correct. Yay! Yeah. Hooray! I got okay. it. Okay. So we are looking at a map here. What What is this map we're looking at? This map begins the exhibit because it shows how the Qin Dynasty grew um, spread from the western area of China into the eastern area of China, then conquered the seven warring states. That's when the first emperor was king, mm-hmm. before he became emperor. So and at this point, these are all like, the, this This is a state here, Qin is a state, correct. and Han mm-hmm. is a state, Chu is a state. These Wei, are all in, Zhao, Yan, and uh, Qi. And they're all fighting each other. For hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the warring states periods lasted a pretty long time. Um, But as the Qin dynasty grew in power because they were able to um, expand agriculturally Mm -hmm. and get wealth, they got the wealth to move to the east. And actually, people immigrated into the Qin area because it was someplace they could make a living and survive. So you had more soldiers, you had more resources, and with that, they one by one, conquered each of the seven warring states. And with that, probably grew to an area close to half of what the size of the United States is today. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to forget how truly big China is. <laughs> um, it's one of those weird things with our the kind of projected uh, maps that mm-hmm. we have, too. With uh, it, it, it ends up looking a little bit smaller on a lot of maps, I think, than it really is. Uh, but I went on Google last night, and the area of at least um, present-day China is nearly exactly the same as the area of present-day United States. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I found this uh, cool website that lets you, like, pick up countries um, and move them around the map mm. to see how the distortion affects their scale and relationship. Sure. And China was one that I, like, moved over to the United States. I was like, oh, my gosh, it is, like, almost exactly the same size as the United That's right. States. Yeah. That's right. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so what the Qin were doing, we were moving from the western mountains of China into basically the um, the agricultural rice bowl and wheat bowl mm-hmm. of, of China, which gave them a lot of wealth. Okay. With that, gave them a lot of power. Um, so eventually, um, for those who can't see the map, it came down about the area of Shanghai. And eventually, the empire came all the way down to where Hong Kong is now. So it grew in the very short 15 years that the empire was under Emperor Shi Huangda. 
Xi Huang. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad we're looking at this too, just because I'm generally pretty bad geography student. <laughs> <laughs> so this is good to orient me as well, also in all mm -hmm. of this stuff. Because I was like, oh, okay. I you know until I visit a place, I don't bother usually checking the map out geography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I know roughly where it is on the globe, but I don't know all its details. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Well, uh, should we move on to... Uh... Sure. Um, what I'd like to start out with is the sword that is here because okay. it represents the military power that the first emperor was able to consolidate under himself. The other very cool thing about this sword is that it is a very precise combination of copper and tin which made it flexible, but very, very sharp. You'll notice how long it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is that they used a chromium oxide on the blade that made it sharper, and it's something the modern-day um, metallurgist didn't discover for another 2,000 years. So they were ahead of them themselves, or ahead of the rest of the world, at least for that technology. Yeah, wow. Another thing that goes along with the military conquest is the battle bell that's right here. It is mounted what some people might think of as upside down right now. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but it could be played this way with the open end up or the open end down because it wasn't a bell as we use today that mm -hmm. has the clapper on the inside. Um, it was specially constructed so that it has a, a oval cross section and depending on where you hit it, you got different tones of the bell. That way, the person directing the battle could even give orders using this bell depending on how it was hit. Hmm. Could be for advance, retreat, pause, um, and you know, move left, move right, move forward. So it's a pretty amazing communication tool yeah. for that time because their armies were huge, tens of thousands of people. And so communication across the... Um, battlefield was quite important. Wow, I did not, I didn't realize that. Absolutely amazing thing. Wow, mm -hmm. that's so cool. When the emperor conquered the other, other seven warring states, mm -hmm. he inherited quite a variety of cultures with their own political systems, their own monetary systems. And in order to grow the empire, he realized that there were a couple of reforms that he needed to do. Mm -hmm. Now, these reforms had been done in his own territory about 100 years before that. And those reforms included standardizing money, okay. standardizing weights, and standardizing writing systems. Because you had all these really different warlords who were taking, <laughs> taking control of different geographic areas. So what we're looking at in this case is... Um, some of the different monetary systems that were used as the emperor was consolidating his power. So some of them used these amazing bronze objects that look kind of strange to us, but they're actually agricultural knives. Oh, okay. Then other ones are axe heads. And this went back to the fact that they would often use agricultural implements for monetary oh, wow. pieces. Um, they also used fabric um, and other things. So it was very important that it was you could move from one part of the empire to the other as a business person and easily be able to trade your goods without working out, well, 
five of my axes worth are two of your knives. <laughs> so what the Chin did was they took their standardized coin, which is a circle that represents heaven and a square that represents the earth and made this a standard coin across the entire empire. Mm -hmm. Then your business people could easily move their goods because there was agreed upon coin and how much it was worth. There is an inscription on it that actually we know the calligrapher that did the calligraphy that became the inscription. What's amazing is that this style of coin continued to be used for the next 2,000 years in China. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, and I mean, it, it's it, it looks like something recognizable to me, at least as a coin. I mean, it's kind of funny because everything else here looks so bizarre as money, at least, you know, to think about, about it. You know, when you're talking about these as knives or, you know, farming implements, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, if I didn't read these labels and I just walked up to it. Yeah, I would assume they were some sort of tool or something and not at all currency. Right. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I love the way it's set up with all these different states. And then on the other side, you have this, the what's the winner, basically, <laughs> right? Like, this is what came out. And it's like, you mm -hmm. can tell it's like, oh, well, mm -hmm. they decided to go with the one from their own uh, uh, area, right? So right. this is like, you know, this is who who conquered and this is who gets to decide what the money looks like <laughs> the victory writes the uh, history yeah. right. it, it is probably the most elegant of the solutions though as far as uh well it's certainly the, the easiest to transport because you'll right. notice how much smaller it is yeah and then because of the square on the center they would string these on cords and it'd be very easy to carry yeah 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 what well, you know my interests are Japan. What's very interesting is this is exactly the shape and size of the 50 yen coin still in Japan today. Yeah. Because this style was so functional and mm -hmm. so efficient that other cultures adopted it. Yeah. So the final one on the pillow here is the winner. Right. Of the beauty contest, I guess you'd, <laughs> you'd want to say. Yeah. It's a little smaller, it looks like, than maybe the older one. Mm-hmm. But, right. uh, you know, still the same basic idea. Mm -hmm. And as, as the economist I've studied to be, the easier it is to transport your money. Yeah. And that people agree that this is worth X amount, then the easier it is for trade. Yeah. But another thing that's really important, Russell, is standardized weights. Oh, yeah. That so this bale of cotton or this bushel of rice is the same weight. So when I trade my coins for that, I know I'm getting the value for it. Right. So this, what looks like a bell shape, or at least a Chinese bell shape, mm -hmm. is actually a weight. Okay. So it was used to, to um, certify that something was X amount of weight. Now what you're looking at there is an edict, and that also shows, both of these objects show the standardization of the writing system as well as the standardization of, of weights. Both objects have edicts on them that were, you know, proclamations by the emperor that this should be done or this shouldn't be done. The plaque was actually mounted somewhere in a public place so people would be able to see it. Not that everybody could read it. Someone would probably have to read it to them, but it would be there. The weight also has edicts on it about what to do and what not to do. Which is pretty amazing. I, I, I'm I'm so interested in that idea of 
standardized measurements and like the way those are, you know, always somewhat arbitrary, but uh, you know, yeah. like the meter that, you know, has like the protected case in France or wherever, where it's like, we're, we're protecting this, like the actual meter that like is like, okay, this is the, standard. Oh, the time clock. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. you know, so you have all of these different, um, things that are the the actual thing that is the sort of abstract idea. I don't know. I just I like that. Oh, it is really abstract. Yeah. Because the world doesn't work on hours, minutes, or seconds. Right, right. Uh, Mother Nature doesn't do that. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, standardized time. I mean, that's something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people, until really, like, the railroads, like, we didn't have... You didn't. It didn't really matter. Like the the idea of what's twelve o'clock in one town and twelve o'clock in another town didn't really matter because you're, until you miss the train, right? Exactly. <laughs> until we had trains, and it's like, well, it matters that this town is on the same time as that town. So, I love those ideas of, of mm -hmm. sort of abstract ideas that have to that that we take for granted as well mm -hmm. too. So. Mm -hmm. Well, if we go over to the calligraphy chart, I think I can give you some information uh, that will put this in context. That's a rubbing that Homé had done. Um, for the, one of the um, items here in the gallery. What's very interesting about this, so this is at least 2,300 years old, and any modern educated Chinese person could read this. Yeah. Because their writing system became standardized over time, and it did include this, which is called the seal script, which is a little bit more geometric than what oftentimes we see in the what we consider the lovely calligraphy mm -hmm. with the the graceful strokes. Right. On that one. Yeah, yeah, I can see a little bit of a a difference what you mean. It's it's there isn't the sort of line weight variation that you're used to like, Correct. you know, and probably mm -hmm. largely cuz it's also a, this was a rubbing from stone, right? You mm -hmm. said so it's right. like when you're chiseling something, you don't have <laughs> brush variation as well. So it's easier to chisel in a straight oh, line. Oh, you got to see some monuments, modern monuments in Asia. They do a pretty amazing job. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's like it's mimicking the, mm -hmm. you know, trying to mimic the brush stroke. And, mm -hmm. and that's probably, you know, become just a part of, well, that's what the character looks like <laughs> now is the idea of like how you can make it with a brush and by varying mm -hmm. the line weight. Mm -hmm. yeah. But to put this in context, um, the Egyptians and 3,150 were in the middle of the, um, uh, the beginning of their first dynasties, and they were already developing hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time that we're talking about that the Qin dynasty was, that was a Ptolemaic period mm -hmm. in Egypt. Um, in India, at 2,600 to 1,900 BC, India was the mature Indus civilization, which also had a writing system. Um, of course, we're all familiar with Hammurabi and his first laws, and that was 1810 to 1750 B.C. in Babylonia. Mm -hmm. In China itself, the Shang Dynasty was 1600 to 1046 B.C., and of course, um, the Shang bronzes have quite a lot of writing on them, too. So actually, the writing that we're looking at here might be from the 3rd century B.C., but it had been developed over 1500 years earlier. Pretty astonishing to yeah. put that in context, isn't it? Um, another interesting thing is right before the Chin, Alexander the Great made it to India. So we're not sure how much his influence came over into the Chin, mm -hmm. but it was certainly there on the Western border. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at our Western world, the Greeks were in the middle of the Hellenistic period. The Romans were in the middle of the Roman Republic. 
And here in the Americas, the Mayans were in their early classical period. And all of those, of course, had writing systems. Hmm. Um, but this is the one that we didn't need translators to work on right. when we found an unearthed, or I should say the Chinese found an unearthed. Just because the language had, had stayed the same, and, or so, so similar. So similar, yeah, right. Yeah. If you come over this chart, actually, Russell, um, over here on the wall, okay. this particular row shows the different warring states, all of the ones that, can, this is their symbol for horse. Mm, okay. Across five of the seven warring states. Right. So you can see how different they are. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, this is the chin. And so this had developed in the ninth century, this particular form of the um, pictograph. And it had started out with oracle bones in the Shang Dynasty, then bronze, then Zhuan seal, which was just about the same time, I mean, um, was in the Qin Dynasty. Eventually, it got up to the Han and then the present day. And you can see the common thing that is there. You have the horse's head with the mane flying out to yeah. the right. Then you have the body of the horse, and you have the four legs, and eventually that magnificent tail yeah. coming off the end. So you can see how it evolved over time, and yet came, kept some of the same ideas across yeah. centuries and centuries. Yeah, that's what, when you were just brought me over, the first thing I noticed about that, I was looking here at the the bottom uh, comparison of all the ones. And when I got to the last one, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, it looks like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Although I didn't think of a uh, mane. I thought actually I was seeing more of a person riding the horse, but um, but that makes sense. We have a beautiful model of a granary here. And this granary really represents the foundation of wealth in the Qin Dynasty with its agricultural production. Mm -hmm. You were able to feed and clothe and house all of your subjects. And of course, when we get over to the Terracotta Warriors, that's gonna be pretty interesting to understand the number of people <laughs> that were involved with this whole endeavor yeah. on that one. Yeah. Another thing that the Chin did, the Chin Emperor did, is I'd like to go back up here to where the horse items are. Okay. Because the horse was the major means of transportation and then became, of course, a major status symbol. But what the Chin did is you needed standardized money, you needed standardized weights, you needed standardized uh, writing system to record all your business deals. You needed a way to get things back and forth. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they standardized the wagons and the width of the axles. Hmm. So no matter what you had, a ward chariot, a um, cart to bring your goods to market, it was all the same width. Oh, okay. So if there ruts develop in the road, you all fit in the same rut. Right. <laughs> you weren't bogged down going, I can't get out of this. Huh. What we have here is some interesting uh, items that were used to decorate the horses. But this one is amazing. The horse neck chain. <laughs> you had a beautiful beast that was doing a good job for you and you loved your horse and you decorated him. Yeah. Isn't that huge? This if horse had a lot of like swag. Like he's <laughs> got like imagining this baller horse walking in with this gold chain. <laughs> bling. Yeah, yeah. It's lots a, of bling. Lots of bling mm -hmm. here, man. Isn't that a common human trait though? Yeah, that yeah. You've got something that, that you love and adore and, and you really 
try to show off. Another thing this represents is that before this, the Qin considered bronze and um, jade more valuable than gold. Huh. Yeah, but it wasn't until they had um, trade with the nomads from the Eurasian steppes, and they, they brought gold to the Qin, that the Qin began to use gold, and it became a status symbol also. Mm. In fact, if we walk around here, a lot of people are going to walk past this tiny tiger. Yeah. And he's only about two inches long and about an inch tall, but he's absolutely spectacular. Um, his grinning teeth, his big ears, you can also see his muscles. These were ornaments that were put on horses and put on clothing also. Okay. So it shows that this particular form of animal depiction came from the nomads. The gold came from the nomads. And then the chin adapted it to their own uses. You also see these beautiful square masks mm -hmm. that are gold. Those also come from the nomads um, because their wealth they actually carry on their bodies mm. rather than the chin, which were a settled people. And so you can see tiny little holes there that some of the holes were used to attach the item to the clothing, but most of them were actually used to be filled with gems or faience. So they must have been pretty spectacular yeah. when they were done. Walk a little bit over here. More swag for the horse. <laughs> that beautiful, um, uh, the, the three rosettes on the bottom would be where parts of the bridle were attached on the side of the horses. And then the piece at the top is for the forehead. Yeah. So, I mean, you are decking your horse out here. Yeah, this is, a, yeah, this, these are, these are quite, quite lovely and very, um, elegant design almost you know if they could feel very uh as contemporary as say like art deco or something you know like the designs on these are very they feel very if i did not know this was over two you know two thousand years old i would just be like oh yeah I, this could be from uh, you know 20 years ago or, or 30 years some, ago some designer could be in here one day and Two years from now, we're going to find this out in a jewelry case somewhere. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it definitely is, is modern enough for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're sort of timeless, I guess. Very timeless. Yeah. It's like the bull of Darius downstairs. No, right, right, sort of. Mm -hmm. looks good, looked good then, looks good now. There you go, there you go. <laughs> more status symbols here. The horses and chariots, when they had more than one horse, they might have, a lot of times they had four horses, mm -hmm. and they had a, uh, a bar there that the horses were up against. Well... Depending on your status, you might only be able to have one bell on that bar. Oh. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> but as you came up in status, you could get up to eight bells on that bar. Oh. So oh as my. your horses went galloping along, you had a musical accompaniment. Right, right. That not only probably was pleasing to the ear, but also sort of, well, I've got mine. Ha, ha, ha. Let everybody know you're <laughs> Let coming. Let everybody know. Yeah. Let everybody know. We have four small bells here that were actually buried with horses. Okay. So horses were very... Um, valued in the Qin dynasty, and um, they look like the battle bells, don't they? Yeah, yeah, same, same mm -hmm. basic shape. Mm -hmm. So it had to be something that was really, really important. Yeah, <laughs> on that one. We'll get a little bit of musical accompaniment. Yeah, well, a little bit of musical compliment, right? We can maybe pick up some of the bell sounds here. At one point, we'll just go stand underneath. Yeah, them. we can. We can just mm -hmm. hold our hold our mics up. <laughs> Much of the exhibit includes items before the first emperor of China, before the first Qin emperor, mm -hmm. because it's really important to understand that 
the, he might have been the first emperor of China, but there have been great dynasties scattered throughout China before that. Mm -hmm. As we said, the Shang went back to um, 1600 BC, so 1400 years before this, right. if my math is correct. So we're, in this case, we're seeing a few things that are very important, and I want to point out the circular items in the back there are mirrors. Oh, okay. Now, what we're seeing is the back, back side yeah. with the decorations on it, and the other side would have been polished. Right. Um, we always like to know how good we look, so right. <laughs> these, these actually serve two purposes. The mirrors were a status symbol, and um, you can see the scrolling designs on there, which are quite beautiful. And on the smallest one, it's a little hard to see, but there are animal designs on that. So mm -hmm. animals, we've seen the tiger, we've seen how important the horse was, um, and that is important. Hundreds of these mirrors were found in tombs of royalty before the first empire was established. Interestingly, they were shattered. Hmm. And it seems like the metals that they were made of were actually made fragile enough that it was easy to shatter them. We don't know why they were shattered. And that is one of the things you always have to keep in mind in an exhibit like this. These artifacts are the witnesses to history. We have very few written records of this time that will tell us what was going on, why something was being used. So we have to look at this and kind of consider how it fit in, where it was found, who it was found with, what it might have been used for. The complex, the Chin's complex, was discovered 44 years ago. And archaeologists have been excavating for 44 years. The couriers that were here a few weeks ago to help with installation said this will probably go on for generations. Mm -hmm. There is just so much that they are finding. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And each time they find another little piece and they have to figure out where it fits into this culture and the development of this culture. And sometimes what they find confirms a theory that somebody had. Yeah. Other times, bust it up. Just <laughs> blows it out of the water and we're still not we're still searching for the answer about why something the idea that the, these mirrors would be shattered is just so funny because it's like to us, of course, like the idea of a shattered mirror is so common and bad luck, right? Right, and it will, and, and to us, it's always this thing that's a, you know in pop culture is this like symbol of like inner turmoil, right? You know, like you can imagine someone dramatically like smashing their mirror, you know, while they look at themselves, um, and so to think about that happening with a bronze mirror, it's hard not to like put that back into it that sort of like emotional context of like a fractured self or even like those kind of ways that a lot of times people um i was touring some like plantation in new orleans and they were talking a lot about like sort of their like practices of like covering mirrors after death and stuff oh, yeah. you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. those connections with like mirrors in the afterlife as well or even um I know in the African gallery, some of the pieces have mirrors as Embedded well. in the stomachs. Well, right. Yeah, that are mm -hmm. sort of seen as like almost like spiritual portals and things. They are. You know? Mm -hmm. So I, I just kind of wonder if, if even that like the, the fact of like the shattering was intentional in that sort of like way we... Mirrors or, are mystical in some weird way, right? Like we always have this like, no matter what, we have this kind of mystical connection to mirrors. And here we have it 
maybe absolutely opposite yeah. what we have in our culture. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someday we're going to actually figure out why they did it. Yeah. I don't know. That's fascinating. So let's hang out underneath the bell here. Oh, I know. Yeah. This is one of my favorite parts of this, this side of the exhibit. So while you hold that up there, Russell, I'm going to go ahead and say that we have one bell here, but this bell would have actually been part of a set of bells. The more bells you had, the more high you were in the court. The highest set of bells found so far was 64. Again, this is a cross-section oval, which means that it can be hit at different time, at different places to create different tones. And you can get on the internet and actually find um, some of these bells played the best is um, a video from a Chinese museum that set them up as they were actually done and only play the bells. They don't add modern instrumentation into it, yeah. which is very cool. On this side, you are actually looking at dragons. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I had to work in the dragons, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the dragons here are facing each other and they are quite serpentine-like mm -hmm. because dragons actually occur all around the world mm -hmm. um, and most of them have a serpent-like body. After that, they have wings, they don't have wings, they have claws, they don't have claws. It's kind of fun, but you have this mystical animal character that is, um, has many powers. And in the East, in Asia, the dragon is the guardian of the rice fields. How important can you get protecting the wealth of the country? Right. If we slide over to this side, there is actually a lot of writing. It's not the most easy, not the easiest thing to see here, but I think it's important to show how even 500 years before the Qin Dynasty, they were using their calligraphy to mark the ritual objects and to add probably power to them mm -hmm. by having this saying on it. Yeah, I love I, I love this part of the exhibit, just being able to hear the 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 bell because it just adds this whole other thing. It's like you, you see so many things like this in a in a museum and you're like, well yeah, but I don't want to read about a bell. I want to hear a bell. <laughs> Ab absolutely. So uh, it, it really is like this whole like interesting uh you know, experience to look at this really old bell and then to hear, you know, what it might sound like and just, it certainly gives it more power than it, it would have just mm -hmm. sitting quietly in a case for me. Absolutely. And what you say, it might be. The recording is not of this bell. Right, right, yeah. Uh, bells this old are very, very fragile. Right, you don't and go around hitting them. <laughs> no, you don't go around hitting them at all. <laughs> Speaking of old... Would you like to meet the oldest piece in the exhibit? Yeah, I think I know which one because I saw it the other day and I was pretty shocked when I saw that age on there. This is pretty crazy. This is our cylindrical mask with openwork design official title. Um, it's also known as a helmet mask. And it's believed that it was worn, it's modeled after a wooden helmet that would have been used by a shaman. Mm -hmm. So a spiritual guide to the people of the time. The mouth is open, the eyes are open, and then it's got that long ridge for the nose. This is actually from the Neolithic period of China from about 3,500 B.C. Absolutely amazing that um, it was uh, still intact. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was one of the items that 
seems to have been part of a tomb robber's items. Mm -hmm. So we're not exactly sure where it was found, but we know it's from Luochan County in the area of the Qin Dynasty. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it just kind of floored me when I just was like, you know, over 5,000 years old, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's mm -hmm. crazy. Like, but, you mm -hmm. know, over almost 6,000, getting close there. It's it's so crazy. I, anytime something is this old, I just am floored by its age alone. <laughs> like, and just like a person made this that long ago. Oh. Like, that's mm -hmm. insane to me. It's this weird, it, to me, it's like time traveling, just, you know, looking at this thing and imagining, and especially something like clay objects that still bear so much, humanity of the making of them you know oh, like absolutely. you know you can see the the imperfections in it mm -hmm. and so it just it feels like this extra connection with that person who made this you know 5000 years ago and how every culture has masks yeah and they travel across time and how important the eyes and the mouth are because they're often what is most emphasized in any mask in any culture um as we say, the eyes are the window to the soul. Yeah. And it, it's one of those spooky things. I was in the gallery the other day with a group, and somebody came to this one and said, oh, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they, were they kind of on a, a Darth Vader thing? Uh -huh. or Definitely they, yeah. on a Darth Vader thing. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I was wondering. I'm like, mm -hmm. mm, yeah. It'll be interesting to see other people's reactions. If there are other, um, for me, it looks like a Hanawa figure from the Japanese mm. about the 5th century A.D., Mm -hmm. And um, you could also say it looks like our Nabataean, um, some of the Nabataean pieces that we have here at the art museum. Um, and I'm sure across many other cultures, there'll be other people that'll come in and go, oh, that reminds me of. And I think that's one of the great things about an exhibit like this, showing across cultures where we have things the same. Yeah, yeah. Right next to this is the little warrior he's about seven inches tall mounted on his horse mm -hmm. and this is at this time again because uh excavations are still ongoing the earliest example we have of a warrior and a horse together mm -hmm. and it's just 100 years before our terracotta army was created mm. so whether the chin got the idea from this or not we're not really sure um it was excavated near the area, in fact, when they were digging for a steel factory. Hmm. Um, the couriers, when they were here and I had a chance to talk to them, said, oh, you put a shovel in the, in the dirt in our area and you're going to dig up something. <laughs> it, it's, it's a total challenge to keep up with yeah. what they're finding as China develops its uh, infrastructure and continues to have its population grow. I think what we're going to do right now is hike on over to the Terracotta Warriors. Okay. So, uh, which over, uh, over here, Russell, where, which way are we starting? Oh, you want to start over on the map? On the map. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we are now on the opposite side of the exhibit, uh, with the, uh, terracotta warriors on it. What everybody really comes to see. <laughs> I know. Yeah. With the, the first, I walked in on Saturday and, uh, the other side of the exhibit was plenty of space to move around. <laughs> if you, if it ever gets a little crowded over here, just uh, take a break and walk over to the other side. There you go. Bask in some of that gold and that's right. There's that a lot of cool there. stuff over there, but yeah, cool. obviously this is what people came to see. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is a plan of the emperor's mausoleum complex. The, the central part of it, actually the entire complex is 38 square miles. Yowza. That's half the size of the city of Cincinnati. 
Wow. By square miles. But let's start in the center there with number one, and that is where the emperor's tomb is located Mm -hmm. under this huge hill Mm -hmm. that has not been excavated. And at this point, there are no plans to excavate it because the next dynasty had recorded that the emperor had insisted that his tomb be inside, his actual tomb, was surrounded by rivers of mercury. Oh, wow. Mercury is toxic. Yeah. And Dr. Song said this was not unusual for the time that there were other rulers had done the same thing. Um, the excavators tested the soil around the mausoleum, and it is toxic with oh, mercury. Wow. And they are not even attempting to go in at this time. Of hmm. course, everybody would love to know what's in there. Right. But nope, we're, we're, we're going on the outside. So there are inner walls and outer walls. The inner walls surround the mausoleum. This was a city into itself. It was meant to have ritual temples where offerings would be made for the emperor and the afterlife for, they hoped, thousands of years to come. That, of course, didn't occur. Um, There are ritual buildings. There are workshops. There are all things that are going around there. There are even some other tombs that are being excavated that we're trying to figure out who might be there. There are chariot pits, which were closest to the tomb, and we have the model of the chariot downstairs. Mm -hmm. It was found in thousands and thousands of pieces because the roof had collapsed on the pit, and um, it took about five years to put it back together again. So the originals have their own museum. There are two, two chariots, and we have one of the models that has been made. Um, then there's officials in another pit. If you go in the outer ways, there's a stone armor pit. There's a pit where there are statues of entertainers, from acrobats to strong men to <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Then there's one pit that's made to look like it's a horse stable, mm. as maybe the horse stables were at that time. Um, there's an office and residential area right there. If you go outside the outer wall, you have... Um, more stable pits, more tombs, then you have the Terracotta Army. The Terracotta Army is over a mile from the tomb of the emperor himself. Yeah. So they're out on the outside there to protect them right. from invading forces. It's like strategic. Like Very this is, strategic. This is where we, I would put my army in this life, so this is where I'm going to put them in the afterlife. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And this point... They're, they believe there are about 8,000 warriors, based on what they have excavated. Um, 2,000 have been excavated. They're only very slowly excavating the others because the oxidation that's occurring um, as the warriors hit the air mm. are making them a little more dip, dip, delicate, and it's a huge restoration yeah. project, so they're using a lot of people as it is already. The, the Terracotta warriors were buried on brick floors, separated by rammed earth walls, covered over with huge wooden beams, and then reed mats over that. Hmm. But over time, um, earthquakes, fires, floods, collapsed all of that on top of the warriors. And so that is why they were so damaged as they were um, Mm -hmm. unearthed. And... uh, there's so many pieces that are being put together again. Mm. I almost forgot. The out, way out there, 
there's almost like a nature preserve. Oh, okay. And that's where our goose comes from. Oh, okay. Uh, like so we'll talk more about that when we get a, to the goose. A fake nature preserve. A fake <laughs> like, nature right. preserve, yeah, right. Not a real one, but mm-hmm. one for sculptures mm-hmm. of animals. Right. We have the maximum number of warriors that are the Chinese government allows out at any one time. And Li Jian and Dr. Sun were able to go to China and actually pick these out. Oh, wow. They made a very specific selection so that we have representations of the different ranks and status of those in the pits from this high-ranking general here all the way back to the back where the little stable boy is. Yeah. So you get a sense of the, the variety that is there in, in the tombs or in the, in the pits. Yeah, there is a, yeah, you, I, I did the drawings for the interactive mm-hmm. uh, back there. So oh, yeah, that's I sp- fun. I spent a lot of time drawing these figures and <laughs> tracing the, all their details. So there is a lot of variety. You kind of start to realize, like, I, when I would get to someone like the armored general or this middle-ranking officer, I started to be like, oh, no, because I would look at all these, like, uh-huh. plates and things that on their uh, uniforms, whereas I would just get to somebody in a, a nice, simple robe, and I was a lot happier because <laughs> there's a lot less to draw. It's like, oh, thank, thank goodness. This one's nice and simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, each of the warriors was made individually. The feet are solid. Hmm then the body and the head are hollow. There is a project being done on facial recognition, and so far they have found none of the upper officers who looks anything the same. Yeah. They're all different. Um, their hairstyles are different. Their hats are different. Their armor is different. Um, some of the stances are the same. So our general here, he's very cool. Yeah. Uh, he's just in command. He's got a very serene face. His hands were originally on the top of the, the sword that we mentioned before. Uh. So his hands were resting. The sword was um, vertical mm-hmm. below him. And then he's got one finger that's coming out, which is basically saying, I'm the one directing this here. Mm. I'm the one. We know he's a general because of the ribbons. If you notice the ribbons that come around his neck, they, f- mm-hmm. they come off the front of the top part of his chest armor. He's got a little bit less armor than some of the other ones have because maybe he didn't go into battle as much. Right. But every one of these warriors, you'll notice the sleeves are pushed back. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're ready. <laughs> we're, 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 we're on the case. We're ready to go with that. He's got a very unusual hat on. You notice there's sort of like two pieces that come off the back. Yeah. Because originally those had pheasant feathers in them. Isn't that easy to say? Um, and so the pheasant feathers would have dangled behind because they're very long, right. very beautiful feathers that would have marked his rank on that one. Next to him, we have a middle ranking officer. The middle ranking officer has a lot more armor on him, but one thing that visitors will notice right away is his head is a different color. Yeah, I, that's what I noticed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, the heads were molded separately. Oh, okay. And then details were added. Like this gentleman, look at the frown lines in his forehead. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? And he's got quite a a different beard on there. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe a new style coming out in Cincinnati. Yeah, maybe. Who knows on that one? Keep your eyes peeled if you're like at a bar in OTR because that's that's what you're going to see. See if this shows up there. Yeah, you might be seeing this soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the different color is because um, 
they were mining clay, and that's how you dig clay out of the holes. You mine them. And they had to be, for 8,000 warriors, digging all over the place to get enough clay to make mm-hmm. these warriors. There was no standardization at that time in the clay. So some clays, this particular one, being that red, has more iron, iron oxide in it. But also, it didn't matter originally because these figures were painted. When they were finished and they moved from the kiln to the shop that assembled them, and then they moved on probably to a shop that painted them, they were originally covered with a dark lacquer. And then on top of that dark lacquer, colors were applied. And we have a lovely chart over here that shows the colors, and it's in the gallery guide too, so people can take that home and see it. I mean, we're talking bright yellow, Hmm. Kelly green, royal purple, um, one of them, our docents laugh about this, jujube red. <laughs> but actually, it's a jujuberry. Right. That is that, that is that color. It's not the candy right. on that one. Um, and uh, blue, and then a, a brown also. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a comp- they are, the Chinese government is collaborating with a German company to find out exactly what these colors are, if we can preserve them more, um, because all of these, there's only one officer, we'll go back to him in a minute, you can see a little bit of red. But generally, again, I'm talking to the couriers that came, one who's a trained archeologist, um, once the last layer of dirt is removed from the warriors, within 25 seconds, the color is already starting to deteriorate. Mm. Um, We didn't get a straight answer about how long it takes, and it could be just depending on the, the weather conditions that day, how long it takes, but it probably was just less than an hour and the color is gone. Hmm. So it's not surprising that they're actually not excavating a lot of the warriors because they're waiting for the technology Hmm. that will help them preserve the colors. That's interesting. I'm all for it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it'll be fabulous. Like we want to keep these down there and like that they're safer there than, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. dug up. Absolutely much safer than dug up. Yeah. Now, this, this gentleman, uh, you can see both hands are out. One would have held a crossbow, and the other would have held a spear. Mm. So he was well-armed. Yeah. <clears throat> then probably people will look at this figure right here and go, whoop, where's his armor? He is so plain. Well, he's a civil official. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I'm really glad that Homei and Li Jian picked this because this represents the fact that the Qin emperor really had a hugely organized military and court. He actually divided the country into 36 different commanderies, and each commanderie had its own military specialist, its own administrative specialist, and its own spy to make sure that everybody else worked the way they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So civil officials were very important to keeping the order and keeping everything flowing smoothly in the country. They were probably in charge of those unified weights and measures, in charge of the roads, in charge of the rebuilding or the expansion of the Great Wall, which the Qin Emperor did, and the building of many canals so that the Qin had a superb transportation system at the time, which would have helped quite a lot. Yeah. Quite a lot. Now we move over here to our one gentleman, which surprised everybody when it got to Virginia originally, because this armored infantry, if you look at the ribbons that come out from his wild hairstyle there, there's red there. 
Yeah. Somehow that red has survived. Huh. And we are so lucky that uh, we have this in here because it gives just a little, little touch about what's going on. Um, this is one of Homei's favorite soldiers. Now, he's got a lot of armor on. It's quite utilitarian, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Look down at his shoes. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. got bows yeah. on his shoes. Yeah, his shoes are much more detailed than a lot uh -huh. of the others. Right. Well, uh, there's some theory that some of these warriors might actually be modeled on specific people. Right, right. And Homais' idea is that this gentleman had a mother or a wife who made those boots especially for him. Hmm. It's kind of a sweet idea. Yeah, yeah. And he actually, if you notice, he's pulled up his leggings. Yeah. Where everybody has those thick leggings down to the ankle. Mm -hmm. He's pulled his up so you see his bows. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you he's see got the little his shoes. bows yeah, on you his legs. His yeah. Mm -hmm. So great. Yeah, the other shoes are much more kind of flat, too, and mm -hmm. sort of have this very square boxiness, and these are, are much more rounded and, mm -hmm. and show off the actual foot shape more. So it's mm -hmm. interesting. I could use those as slippers. I know. They look neat. They look and I encourage everybody nice. to look at the backs of the, the figures, too, yeah. because it shows the different hairstyles. Um, again, so far, with all the higher-ranking officials, the hairstyles are different. But someone has done an analysis of the lower infantry man, mm -hmm. infantry men, and among them there are about forty hairstyles. Oh wow! But that's still pretty amazing. Yeah, for yeah, just when especially when you're talking about you know eight thousand we believe mm -hmm. uh, soldiers. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Here in the center of this room is our cavalry man and his horse. I know the kids are going to go crazy about the horse. Yeah, he's he's quite spectacular. And the other thing that's interesting is these are the only two that are smiling. Yeah. Everyone else is more battle ready <laughs> and um, kind of stern <laughs> and I'm on the job. And he's, he's definitely smiling. Yeah. So this might be his favorite horse. Even the horse looks like he's smiling. Yeah, I know. The horse does seem pretty happy. Mm -hmm. The horse <laughs> seems very happy. Now, people will ask about the holes in the horse. Right. But those were part of the process of firing. Mm-hmm. And you needed the holes that when it got up to uh, those very, very high temperatures, the gases could escape. Right. Cause and the horse wouldn't explode. Yeah. When it's, it's typically when you're firing clay, if you've never done it, you need, it's best to leave a hole somewhere because mm -hmm. if you don't, you risk uh, that hot air blowing your piece up. So I'm sure that was a big risk. And blowing up the ones next to you. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it takes up, takes out a few, a few others, a few At innocent uh, bystanders. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now back to the, the our little nature preserve. Right here's our. We dad. have this wonderful little goose. goose right here, and the goose was part of 46 other birds that included six cranes, 20 swans, 20 wild geese, and they were neatly arranged along a fake riverbank. Hmm. They were actually doing bird things. <laughs> you know, they were dipping their head in the water right. or paddling around, and one of the cranes actually has a worm in its mouth. <laughs> but he is way too fragile to come. His right. legs is like little chopsticks legs. But this particular goose is beautiful. His head is so, neck are so graceful. Mm -hmm. It is so accurate that ornithologists have actually identified exactly what kind of goose this is. Hmm. It's a answer Signoides, sorry, ornithologists, if I said that wrong, <laughs> or a swan goose that is native to Mongolia. Hmm. And they migrate southward to China in the wintertime. Oh. So 
It's quite graceful. It's also very delicate, unfortunately. Well, what happened when they were unpacking it, a little bit of that scale from right. oxidation fell off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're very lucky to have that one. And that's a fairly recent discovery. Um, this part, that pit was only discovered in 2000. Oh, wow, that is well, pretty recent. Well, doesn't it illustrate the fact that the first pit was discovered in 1974, this one in 2000. Who knows what we're going to find as they continue to go through 38 square miles of a necropolis. Yeah, it is exciting to think about that. I, I know I, I didn't understand that these were had been discovered quite so recently until we started talking about the show. I was like, oh, really? Just in the 70s? That's when this mm -hmm. was, you know, mm -hmm. it's, I, I guess since it's always been around in my lifetime. So I've just always thought like, oh, I'm sure that we've known about this for years. And so when I realized that, I thought, oh, wow, it does make you excited for, you know, it seems like, well, anything could be under there. We could discover anything. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, these were found when I was teaching. So yeah. I, I was well aware of, of, of finding them. We're standing in front of the stone armor. Um, now, this never would have been worn. It's way too heavy. It's made out of limestone. And each tiny piece is a different shape so that it is molded as if it were the armor that you see on the terracotta warriors right. themselves. Yeah. And it's attached with, well, it had to be reattached. Those are new copper wires. Oh, okay. It was found in this pile, uh, which was quite, quite a chore to figure out what piece went where. Um, I can imagine. I, I don't envy the, probably the team that was working <laughs> on that and trying to figure out how things went. Look at the helmet. Isn't it almost the same shape as that uh, helmet mask that we saw that was, uh, well, now 5,000 years old. Yeah, it's it's really similar. It's the mm -hmm. same. It's a little more rounded on the top, top. but otherwise, yeah, same basic mm -hmm. kind of bell shape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Flares out mm -hmm. over the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, this one, though, uh, doesn't have eyes and mouth. It just has the opening for the eyes and mouth. But it's pretty spectacular. Um, this would have been strictly a burial good. It would not have ever been worn. So it would have been crea uh, specially created probably for the uh, emperor. Yeah. This was found in 1999. Oh, wow. So as I said, things are still Pretty being... recent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then as we come down in rank, we now are coming to the archers. And there's a standing archer and a kneeling archer because that is how their battle formations would be. Mm. So while the kneeling archers might be shooting, the standing archers are getting their bows ready. When they shoot, the kneeling archers are getting those bows right. right. So you can have this just this tornado or hurricane of arrows coming at you because of that. Um, again, you can check out the armor and the platelets because it's right next to that stone armor and see exactly how that was created. Mm -hmm. These probably were leather, mm. very hardened leather um, that was used for that one. Yeah, and our standing archer doesn't have any armor. I know. We were wondering about that, too. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, I wonder if this guy would be maybe a little bit closer to battle or something, or, you know, up up on the mm -hmm. front lines, maybe, mm -hmm. and whereas he could be a little farther back. So could be. He doesn't get to mm -hmm. have the safety of the armor. <laughs> well, he's got some pretty heavily padded clothing on. Yeah, there. yeah. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, but he doesn't get the plate armor there. You've got more hope going there than, <laughs> right. than things that are doing. The last of the large figures is our armored charioteer. His hands are out as, as if he's got the reins in his hand for his horse, horses. 
And this relates directly to the model that's downstairs mm -hmm. of, of the charioteer that is there. Again, his head is very different from his body. And you can actually see on the one side of his right shoulder, the clay there is a whole different color. Yeah. Um, that could be what's called wood ash from the fires mm -hmm. that uh, would come. These were all wood-fired kilns. I sometimes wonder how many hills they had deforested. Just to fire all Just of to these. fire yeah. these kilns. You're talking figures. Now, granted, uh, they were fired in pieces, mm -hmm. but they are six feet tall yeah. and taller than that. They're quite bulky, and it would take tremendous amounts of wood to get the fires, the kilns up to the fire, to get the kilns up to the temperature oh, yeah. that would needed to do this. They must have had an army of people just to dig the kiln out. I mean, dig the, um, the clay out. Right. And right. build the kilns on that one. Just turning around now and like seeing the bottom of the kneeling archer's foot is mm -hmm. also really great to see the tread on his shoes. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. so great. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, you'll notice there's a, a number. Well, one number's crossed down. Mm -hmm. The number is below there. There are a few of the warriors that have their um, excavation numbers still on them. Right. Because, of course, all of these things needed to be cataloged very carefully mm -hmm. when um, they were uncovered. And I think he's got one of the coolest hairdos in the whole. He does. He's got all that braiding yeah. right there. And yeah. then up to the top knot. Yeah, super intricate. And a lot of mm -hmm. detail in the hair, too, mm -hmm. kind of showing you like all the well, little it's, lines. It's, you can practically see the comb marks. Yeah, yeah. For the That's individual really hairs. Great. And then we come to our little stable boy. Oh. The poor deer. You know, he, he wasn't of any high rank at all. He was just there to clean up the poop and feed the horses <laughs> on that. But he's a dignified little character, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He seems almost kind of religious in a way, like mm -hmm. just by his the, mm -hmm. the, the kneeling pose and the robe. You know, I wouldn't, mm -hmm. if I saw this figure just anywhere else, I would not think stable boy, right? I would, I would go I somewhere. I would think a monk. Right, yeah. I would mm -hmm. go somewhere more holy mm -hmm. with him, yeah. A novice monk or something like that. He right. looks... Thinking of my grandchildren, he looks about 10, 11 years old yeah. at this point, which it was not unusual to have children begin working mm -hmm. that young. And um, they had a lot of horses. Mm -hmm. it was, they, they used the horses for their cavalry. They used it for the transportation. And they would have needed a lot of stable boys like that. Mm -hmm. but he's very sweet. And I think that is one of the unique aspects of this particular grouping of the terracotta warriors over ones that have been in other places in the United States in that we have this huge range of ranking mm -hmm. and gives a really better idea of the vastness of the ensemble mm -hmm. that you could have that many figures be such a testament to the emperor's power, to his organization, and to his military strength. Yeah, yeah. It's great to be able to examine them up close like this too, to just be able to see all those details of the faces and the difference, and it, it helps mm -hmm. you kind of understand the vastness of the whole project when mm -hmm. you see how individualized they are, and then you kind of multiply that out, and you see you know, the images we have here of mm -hmm. these pits filled with them, you go, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. you know? It's really, really awesome. Especially considering that there were 8,000 warriors, then there were over a hundred chariots, right? hundreds and hundreds of horses, <laughs> right? then the, the little stable attendants and the grooms. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's going to be interesting as they continue excavations and, and uh, uncovering 
more mysteries or maybe uncovering more things that go, yep, okay, that proves that theory <laughs> yeah. on that one. Yeah, yeah. All of these figures, of course, were excavated from the first emperor's tombs, and mm -hmm. those were built over a course of 38 years. Okay. But tombs like this were not unusual, and items in the exhibit are from the 8th up to this 8th century BC up to this time. So it's a long tradition of tomb burials and burying things with them. The emperor sort of went over the top with right. that many warriors, but it, it was a long-standing tradition among them. Oh, okay. So when you said present time, you mean present time of the show. Of the show. Right. right. Of, the, of mm -hmm. these works. That's why I was like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about today? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> does this today. That's insane. <laughs> and to wrap things up, uh, this, the Terracotta Warriors, the necropolis, the tomb, and all the treasures that have been found were all the emperor's quest for immortality. He wanted to live forever. But if he didn't, he was going to have everything he needed to rule his empire from the necropolis. So mm -hmm. he's got the army, he's got the weaponry, he's got the armor, he's got what he thinks he's going to need. Yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't last that long. Yeah. You said mm -hmm. how old was he when he died? He was barely 40 years old. Okay. Yeah, a little yeah, over 40 young. years old. Yeah, pretty young. Mm -hmm. yeah. Probably outlived a lot of the peasants at the time. But I'm sure, or, I'm sure. Or someone of his rank and yeah. up the food chain. <laughs> All right. Well, thank mm -hmm. you so much for uh, showing me uh, the exhibition, Helen. Sure. Glad to help. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. The special exhibitions on view right now are William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, Ragnar Kjartansson, The Visitors and Scenes from Western Culture, and of course, Terracotta Army, Legacy of the First Emperor of China. Museum members receive free tickets to Terracotta Army, so this is the perfect time to join. For membership information, tickets, program reservations, and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofran Musical by Bacalao. You know, it's been a while since I came up with a clever way to beg you to leave a review on iTunes. Nah, still don't have anything clever. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.